Before we get started, I want to tell you guys about a new sponsor of the podcast, Penguin Random House Audio. They produce thousands of today's most popular books on audio recording so you can listen anytime, anywhere. I'll admit it can be hard for me to carve out quiet, uninterrupted time to read during packed days, and I'm sure a lot of you feel the same. But I love knowing that I have a real page turner waiting for me during downtime, and that's where audiobooks come in. I can just pop one on during my commute as I'm running errands or as I'm getting dinner ready. Since I'm always looking for ways to supercharge my productivity and impact as CEO, I've been on a real business book kick lately. I just finished up How Luck Happens by Janice Kaplan, a legendary magazine editor who breaks down the science behind how we can actually create luck in our lives instead of waiting for it to come to us. By interviewing some of today's thought leaders like Dan Ariely and diving into some of the world's most successful companies like Warby Parker, the book presents specific ways to actually manifest a brighter future. I'd recommend it to everyone. And for a limited time only, Penguin Random House is offering one of their top audiobooks, Before Happiness by Sean Aker, for free by visiting tryaudiobooks.com slash mbg. That's tryaudiobooks.com slash mbg. Happy listening. Now, let's get to today's episode. Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of My Buddy Green, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the My Buddy Green podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at mybuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Dr. David Perlmutter made waves years ago with his best-selling book, Grain Brain, which made the connection between gluten, inflammation, and various modern diseases, especially brain health. In this podcast, we dive deep into the science of eating for both the brain and the body, including a fascinating discussion about Alzheimer's. We also get into eating for DNA, which we can learn from our ancestors, whether sugar or grains are worse for your body, the ketogenic diet, and much, much, much more. If you're at all interested in keeping your brain and body healthy as you age, you won't want to miss this podcast. Dr. Perlmutter is a longtime contributor at MindBuddyGreen and has even spoken at a Revitalize event in 2016, which you'll also want to check out. He is one of the leading voices in functional medicine, and it's an honor to have him here today. Dr. Perlmutter, welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Good morning. Good morning. So for people who don't know you, and I feel like everyone knows you, though, uh, people know you through Grain Brain, like one of the all-time bestsellers and a pioneer in nutrition and wellness. So just talk to people a little bit about Grain Brain for those who maybe aren't familiar and the inspiration for that book. I think the inspiration was frustration and uh, certainly lack of satisfaction with what was going on in my professional life. And then more globally, what I then perceived was going on in the world of medicine, but specifically as it related to neurology, i.e. brain health. 
And as a practicing neurologist, I really became so dissatisfied with the level of accomplishment, which really contrasted with my personal drive in terms of achieving goals. My goal was to really be an effective physician at that time. And I found that the tools I was being given uh, in mainstream neurology were pretty much ineffective. They were placating uh, issues, placating symptoms, but not really approaching the underlying issues of disease causation. So while we were treating the smoke, we were ignoring the fire. And I began to explore what really was underpinning so much of the brain degenerative conditions that we were uh, seeing, things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, etc. And interestingly, at that time, years ago, it became very clear that there was a fundamental mechanism, oddly enough, that uh, was supporting all of these conditions and more. And while neurologists and I think Western physicians in general try to be very specific and delineate uh, the microcosm of each disease process, the idea of stepping back and saying not how each disease is different, but could there be a mechanism that kind of unites all of these conditions, that really contrasted with the, the modern Western medical model. And what I discovered was that there was a robust data set indicating that the process of inflammation was really what was involved in all of these and other conditions, including many outside the brain, like cancer, diabetes, coronary artery disease, etc. So I took a step back and asked, well, what is this sudden uh, cause of inflammation in humans uh, likely that hasn't been present in the past? Because clearly, if we had experienced uh, in our ancestral times the degree of degenerative conditions that we are experiencing now, likely we might not be here uh, to tell the tale. So when we discovered that there was this unifying principle of inflammation from the Latin inflame, meaning basically to light on fire, underlying neurodegenerative conditions, and for me, that the neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's, etc., really made up the bulk of what I was doing, took a step back and said, well, what is the literature that would help us understand what might be causing inflammation in humans? And that led me to the understanding that, first, the most important shift in the human lifestyle choice a paradigm over the past couple of hundred years has been a shift from a diet that was fundamentally deriving its calories from uh, fat, uh, protein, and fiber to one that was focusing on higher levels of carbohydrates with the introduction a couple hundred years ago of more simplified or highly processed carbohydrates. Could that be uh, playing a role in fanning the flames, quite literally, of inflammation? And I began to look at that and realize that, in fact, when carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates are ingested, one would expect it to raise the blood sugar. Eat sugar, you're going to raise your blood sugar. And in fact, that is certainly quite evident. What is the connection then between this elevation of the blood sugar, which is now pervasive, and this process of inflammation? And I noted that there was lots of research going on uh, with respect to a very specific process. So we've gone from kind of a global understanding of inflammation mechanistically being involved in the brain degeneration 
to this possible relationship to our dietary shift towards more simple carbohydrates, elevating the blood sugar, how does that relate back? How do we connect those dots back to the process of inflammation, completing the circle? And we learned that elevated blood sugar binds to proteins in a process that is called glycation or glycosylation. And uh, to take a step back, people are very familiar with this term who have diabetes, for example, because they measure it quite frequently. They do a blood test called A1C. Everybody, it's on television, for crying out loud. Everybody's trying to lower their A1Cs. A1C is a blood test of glycosylation or sugar binding to protein, in this case, hemoglobin. So this process, when elevated blood sugar circulating through your body binds to protein, does what? Two important things. Number one, it augments the production of dangerous chemicals called free radicals. But number two, it flips the switch, turning on inflammation. So the circle's complete. So now we have a connection then between a major shift in human dietary patterns and the process that underlies Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, coronary artery disease, diabetes, cancer. And that was quite an epiphany for me. And this was also personal for you, too. Well, it, it is personal uh, for my own health, of yeah. course, uh, for, <clears throat> but more importantly, uh, you know, as I watched uh, my father uh, begin at those, in those days to demonstrate cognitive failure, ultimately uh, he passed from um, Alzheimer's directly as a result of his Alzheimer's disease. So here I am seeing patients every day coming to me with Alzheimer's with the literature starting to indicate that, yes, there is a correlation between elevation of the blood sugar and risk for developing Alzheimer's, appearing in September of 2013 in the New England Journal of Medicine, demonstrating quite interestingly that you don't have to be diabetic. Uh, you don't have to have a very high blood sugar to have this relationship hold true. As a matter of fact, they indicated that blood sugars that we would at that time have considered to be so-called so in the normal range are actually also associated with increased risk of brain degeneration. That was a very powerful aha moment for me because no one was talking about it. All I was being told in the neurology journals that I would read, the neurology uh, lectures that I would attend and meetings that I would attend in terms of Western medicine uh, derived uh, events was what to do for the Alzheimer's patient in terms of medication. To this day, as you and I have this conversation, there is no effective treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And yet we were being uh, bombarded with uh, sketchy science uh, that would indicate that we were supposed to place all of our patients on a particular medication called Donepazil as that was going to prove helpful. It didn't work then and it doesn't work now. Well, I was not satisfied with that. I mean, he were, here we were trying to close the barn door when the cow got out, and we couldn't find the cow. Uh, and uh, so it, it really made me want to focus on the notion uh, of prevention as it relates to Alzheimer's, uh, keeping the brain healthy. And no one would talk about such a thing. While at that time, in those days, there were preventive strategies for osteoporosis and coronary artery disease. People were talking about the heart-smart diet and women getting uh, weight, doing weight-bearing exercise. Yet the brain, even to this day, to a large degree, is left out of that discussion for whatever reason, despite the fact that 
the peer-reviewed, wonderful research is so conclusive, in my opinion, uh, with respect to lifestyle effects upon the brain. And, you know, when Grain Brain was written in 2013, I was well into uh, my exploration of integrative, complementary, alternative, uh, more specifically functional medicine. Uh, that began 26, 27 years ago. Uh, because, so my level of dissatisfaction with my you know, involvement <laughs> with mainstream approaches to the brain really ha- has a, a long history. So Grain Brain really represented the manifestation of my exploration over many, many years and really the culmination of not just this uh, ideas, ideology from a, uh, a theoretical perspective, but I was putting these practices uh, to work in my medical practice in terms of interfacing with uh, individuals who may be at risk for brain degeneration by virtue of their pedigree, lifestyle choices, or recognizing the fact that Everybody is at risk uh, in the real world. I mean, uh, the statistics indicate that if you live to be age 85 years, your risk for Alzheimer's, for example, is 50-50, the flip of a coin. Wow. It's breathtaking. So that clearly, in my mind, even to this day, qualifies as an epidemic. Uh, When we recognize that uh, 50% of the segment of the American population... So it's it's U.S., not global. uh, Anybody, anybody age 85 years, wow. you know, it's you know, certainly greater in, uh, in America. But that is the segment of our population that's expanding most rapidly. So that's what went uh, into Grain Brain. The other issue that became very evident to me was the burgeoning level of research uh, that indicated that gluten seemed to pose a threat uh, to the body in general uh, and uh, specifically was playing a role in inflammation. And back in those days, <laughs> we're talking 2013, so uh, so long ago, yes, we already had the Internet, uh, <laughs> but in those days, there was precious little information about gluten and, uh, and the idea that this particular protein uh, that had become pervasive in the human diet over the past 10,000 years uh, could be somehow related to uh, health compromise. Uh, Wheat Belly had been written sure. by Dr. William Davis, and really focused on uh, gluten uh, and its subcomponents in terms of its effect on inflammation, its effect on the brain, its addictive potential, and really the notion of wheat in general being uh, a carbohydrate and generally processed carbohydrate in terms of the foods that it is uh, that it creates. Uh, that wheat uh, was not necessarily salubrious towards humans. And that, uh, William Davis didn't say this, but others have said that how incredible it is that the wheat plant domesticated humans to allow uh, its spread around the globe. But that said, I found that book to be very compelling and began looking at gluten, the whole notion of gluten. And really in those days, we began seeing literature indicating that people can have side effects or maladaptive events from consuming gluten who didn't specifically have celiac disease. And this was almost heresy to consider that people could consume wheat, barley, rye, and to a large extent oats, generally containing gluten in those days, and have medical issues that uh, didn't relate to celiac disease. So we began seeing into in those early parts of uh, the teens that 
there was this be, be, the beginnings of this delineation between celiac disease as an autoimmune condition affecting about 1.4 to 1.6 percent of humans, genetically determined to a significant degree, and the beginnings of this notion of what is called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, whereby through different mechanisms, individuals, some individuals, would consume this protein gluten and have uh, ill effects, uh, ranging from gastrointestinal issues, which were in fact quite common, to extra-intestinal manifestations, including brain manifestations, uh, with uh, large um, meetings being held around the world where leaders in gluten research would get together and delineate uh, these ideas, uh, indicating that, for example, headache, movement disorders, brain fog, depression, uh, and even schizophrenia could be related uh, to the consumption of gluten, apart from having celiac disease. And much of these symposia were were looked down upon. Many of these researchers were derogated uh, in uh, the literature. And so it was a very difficult time to establish, you know, put a, a dig your heels in and say, look, we are seeing patients who have clinical manifestations of gluten sensitivity. How do we know this? We know this because one by one, we take gluten out of their diets, and that problem that has been so tenacious and so refractory to treatment suddenly improves. Sure. And I began seeing patients with movement disorders, chronic headaches, uh, you name it, uh, having a variety of neurological manifestations, improving on a gluten-free diet. And I would do my very best to present these cases to my peers in meetings with videos of, uh, you know, I, I took one patient, put her on the Dr. Oz show. I took another patient and wrote a peer-reviewed uh, clinical study of him in terms of his headaches that he had for 28 years, taking narcotics, couldn't, uh, couldn't, Breakthrough, and finally, on a gluten-free diet, he he improved. So, uh, yet uh, my colleagues, my mainstream colleagues, re- rejected this. And uh, one one uh, interesting uh, event occurred. I had a woman with headaches for years and years. Put her on a gluten-free diet. Her headaches went away. She was so happy. She visited a gastroenterologist who said to her, "I can't understand why Dr. Perlmutter put you on a gluten-free diet. You know what's coming. You don't have celiac disease." Therefore, you don't need a gluten-free diet. And I'm going to prove it to you by performing an endoscopy and biopsying uh, your intestines. And he did so. Biopsied your intestines, which is one of the ways to make the diagnosis of celiac disease. The biopsy proved negative. He said, you don't have celiac disease. Go back on gluten. This guy doesn't know, Perlmutter, doesn't know what he's talking about. She did. Headaches came back with a vengeance. And then she finally went back off gluten. So So let me ask you, if you're just a regular person listening to the podcast and, and you're you know you're fairly healthy you feel pretty good you know normal stuff and and you have you have gluten maybe not every day but you have it in in your estimation what should that person do should they is it okay is it should should everyone be off gluten or is and then or is it okay to have all the gluten-free treats that are now available everywhere because it's such a huge trend well you bring up uh, various points uh and first uh, let me talk about my recommendation in terms of the degree of gluten-free that I think everyone should engage. And, uh, you know, interesting study uh, came out of Harvard uh, last year uh, from Dr. Alessio Fasano's lab, yep. in which they demonstrated that all humans have 
a some degree of increased permeability of the gut when they are exposed to gliadin, which is a protein that makes up gluten to some degree. When we recognize that the leakiness of the gut, this permeability of the gut that so many of us have been talking about for decades but now is on everyone's minds, quite literally, pun intended, that uh, this occurs to some degree in everybody, that somehow this alpha-gliadin induces some degree of leakiness of the gut in everyone, is that an issue? Well, it is a straw on the camel's back. It contributes to increasing uh, both inflammation as well as dysregulation or problems with the balance of the immune system. So the less gluten everyone consumes, the better. If you've been diagnosed with celiac disease, you need to be as close to 100% gluten-free as you possibly can. If you have a clear-cut clinical problem when you consume gluten, in other words, you have demonstrable non-celiac gluten sensitivity, then it makes sense to stop as much gluten as you possibly can. But I think going gluten-free is the best thing I would go out on a limb and say for everybody. Do the very best you can. I can tell you that I'm certain there are times when I'm consuming gluten. Not that I know that because I have some sort of event or clinical manifestation, but you know who knows what went into the gravy uh, in the dinner that somebody's serving you at somebody's house. Uh, But that said, the obvious sources of gluten I avoid. So, but beyond that, you know, you also brought up an interesting point, and that is, should we all be eating gluten-free treats? And I think that the, you know, the notion of uh, the gluten-free aisle in the in the grocery store, I think, is terrific. But by and large, uh, those products are really threatening. Why? Because we have gluten-free cakes and pasta, you know, and uh, cookie dough, and you name it. And uh, these are devastating in terms of their carb content. Uh, by and large, are um, you know highly processed carbs with a high glycemic index. And gets back to our earlier discussion about we want to do everything we possibly can to keep our blood sugars low because that is the most uh, uh, appropriate idea in terms of reducing that sure. inflammation uh, that we talked about as being the cornerstone of everything bad you don't want to get. So is it okay, though, if I'm, you know, every once in a while, like once a month or so, I want to have a, you know, great piece of pizza or a piece of cake? Is that probably okay if I'm normal and if I'm, quote, unquote, don't have a, a sensitivity? If you're normal? If, if I'm, I'm, <laughs> Where are we I'm go definitely with, not normal. Where are we going to go with that conversation? That's <laughs> a six foot seven <laughs> man if he's normal. Uh, yeah, like, is that probably... Okay, because for some people it's scary. Where they say like, okay, they read your they 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 read all the literature and like, holy shit, I'm scared. And yeah, this is I, a big I would thing, say, but like, it, I don't know if I can do this. Like, birthdays happen, events, you know. Well, I would say it is a question of degree, not of kind. It's right. analog, not binary. And uh, that said, you know, you bring up the notion of it's your birthday, it's Thanksgiving, it's Shavuos, it is uh, your your boss's ex wife's. Uh, you know, <laughs> graduation day, whatever. There's yeah. always, you look at the calendar, every day is something. Sure. And, and truly, with all due respect, your body's cells don't know that it happens to be Valentine's Day. Um, I think you really have to do your best. And, you know, as an older person in comparison to you, I would indicate that when you get to be my age, I'm 63, you you think back about, uh, you know, more than your indiscretions about how tighter you could have been with your program. You know, I, I think in my younger days, 
I was not eating as appropriately as I am now. I certainly was in the sun too much. And, you know, you can't reverse that. Uh, you know, many things that I had done uh, that I wish I would have been better at. Uh, and, you know, having seen what my risk factors are by looking at my family history. And I think, you know, to, to mention that. That's another thing to look at, too. Yeah, I think it really, I think these days when uh, we can sequence our genome for not much money, and then use the data that we get, let's say from 23andMe, and send that off to various other companies and learn more about what these uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms or these variations in our genes actually mean, I think we are developing you know, a really uh, expansive understanding about who uniquely we are uh, in terms of what, moving forward, our lifestyle choices should be, again, specifically for us as individuals, which to some degree, I think, should be contrasted with the broad-stroke recommendations sure. of a lower-carbohydrate, higher-fat, as gluten-free as possible type of diet. So you, men you mentioned carb, fat. Let's move on to sugar. Quite literally, are we bringing out the sugar now? We're bringing out the sugar <laughs> okay. now. Not so good. No. What, you I'm... have one of my favorite lines, by the way, from Revitalize Two Years. It doesn't matter if your bees are meditating in an ashram. <laughs> It's still sugar. you got to get over it. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, you know, it's really uh, sometimes very challenging for me to see what gains traction in terms of satisfy, in terms of media trying to allow us to satisfy the sweet tooth uh, as being a healthful uh, sweetener. I mean, there was a time in our distant past when there was something called you may not remember this. You're, you're a little too young. Called agave nectar. I remember. I'm <laughs> I 43. Of course. So, so uh, and, and that was being marketed not just because it was agave, but they added the nectar part mm -hmm. as if it was you know the, uh, the the drink of the gods or the fruit of the gods. So the drink of the gods. So uh, and, and you, yet you would go to a health food store or a restaurant, and they would have no sugar, but they would have agave. I mean, agave is is you know, one of the highest fructose-containing sweeteners available on the planet. And while it might have even been organic, which is an, another moniker that tends to have so much traction, allow people to think, well, it's organic, I can eat as much as I want, right. or non-GMO, uh, you know, plutonium is probably non-GMO. I mean, obviously it is. It's a natural thing. But that said, just because it's the du jour sweetener, uh, I think you have to take a step back and ask yourself, is that really what I want to be consuming? Uh, 100%, if I may be so bold, of humans have a sweet tooth. Why? Because that's part of the hard drive. Uh, it is our, in our wiring that we would seek out sweet. It's an ancestral uh, trait that allowed humans to survive. Sweet meant ripe. Uh, sweet meant winter was coming. It was our clue that uh, the winter would be here soon, and we ate those wild blueberries that contained the sugar that stimulated our insulin that led to our increased body fat so we would survive. So our sweet tooth is uh, a legacy. And now that sweet tooth is catered to uh, 24-7, 365 and leads to obesity. So, you know, as Gary Taubes made so clear, our obesity issue is not from our fat consumption. Uh, Nina Teicholz as well, uh, that, you know, it, our obesity issue is from the sugar-stimulating Insulin causing our body to think winter's coming better, make some fat. So how wonderful it is that 
this movement to understand that fat is our friend is really gaining traction and people are recognizing the demon here is, is sugar, not fat. One thing also I want to talk about in sugar is the link between anxiety and depression. I had to have a sip of my coffee. <laughs> so there you go. Coffee's okay. Black coffee is gluten-free. Yeah. Black coffee good in the Dr. Perlmutter program? Yes, low acrylamide coffee. Uh, you, and you guys can, you can Google that one. The proposition, I think it's 65 in California. Um, I would say that uh, the mechanism, you know, a lot of my life is about connecting dots. And the, the mechanism likely that relates a higher sugar, lower fat diet to things like mood issues, I believe uh, Dr. Emron Mayer has made clear at uh, UCLA that that connection likely stems from changes that are observed in the microbiome and in, in the gut organisms as well as their metabolic products, even their genetic signatures. So uh, I think that's a, a, a powerful me- mechanism. I think that even uh, more importantly, when we are catering to this notion of of stimulating the reward part of the brain with sugar, we create we strengthen that pathway to those reward areas of the brain that then are involved with a neurotransmitter called dopamine, and it tends to distance us from connecting to other parts of the brain that aren't involved in directly rewarding us moment to moment but are involved in our ability to be, for example, empathetic, our ability to make long-term plans, our ability to understand the long-term implications of our day-to-day actions or our choices. Uh, We live in a society where we are catering to the reward areas of the brain moment to moment. And those areas of the brain cause us to respond to challenges immediately, as opposed to taking a deep breath and sitting back a little bit and asking what should the appropriate choices be. So it is, it, our food choices are influencing the wiring, the actual wiring of the brains of the world in terms of how we see the westernization of global food consumption. So it's actually causing, quite literally, rewiring of the human brain and causing that brain to be more focused on moment-to-moment pleasure, uh, moment-to-moment um, feelings of wanting things for self, narcissism, versus the empathetic brain, the brain that understands or, or at least vets what the long-term consequences of our actions may be. Instagram doesn't help either. Well, it's true. I mean, uh, Instagram <laughs> and other forms of social media, we call them social media, but they're nothing that uh, along the lines of of being social. They're not about socialization. Socialization is what you and I are doing right now. We are making eye contact. We're sharing air. We're breathing in each other's microbes. I'm appreciating your facial expression. I'm bonding (laughs) with you. That's what socialization is all about. And this notion of thinking that we are connected because we have X number of friends on various platforms or number of people that are following us you know, you still stay in your apartment and, and read the the comments on your latest uh, Instagram post and you feel connected, it's not happening. Do you think there are long-term effects on mental health that we don't even, we're not even aware of yet? I, I would say we are aware of, yeah. of these uh, issues. I think that contributes to our sense of isolation. Um, you know, that coupled with the the way that marketing is targeting us to try to satisfy our desires to be uh, happy by purchasing things 
The more of these things you purchase, the more I can look like that person or be like that person or live that life that looks so wonderful. And it leaves people feeling absolutely empty. The real connection part of life is good for the brain. It's good for the body. It lowers cortisol. It's good for the immune system. But it's the connection in real time with real people in a real social network. So I definitely want to talk about lifestyle in a big way. But before we do that, you mentioned fat. So I'm going to, I'm going to bucket <laughs> fat, fat, intermittent fasting, and ketosis all in one bucket. So let's talk about those things. Okay. So... You know, from many perspectives, I think a higher fat diet it makes really good sense. And, uh, you know, there is um, the sense that we really need to get back to our ancestral lifestyle because the focus really needs to be on our genome and how our genome has been so specifically cultivated to respond to our environment. And I want to be clear when I say environment, I mean all of those influences upon our genome. The air we breathe, the cycles of day and night, the food that we consume, our interactions with other people, the amount of stress in our lives, etc., have a direct effect on the expression of our life code, our DNA. That's a pretty heady subject that certainly was nothing uh, that was uh, a point of discussion when I was in medical school, for example. We were indoctrinated with the notion that DNA was a one-way street. This, uh, The primal doctrine was one of DNA to is transcribed into proteins, uh, uh, ultimately, you know, of course, uh, uh, amino acids, building blocks of proteins, and then proteins do this and that throughout your body. But that DNA was your uh, absolute inviolate in code of uh, who you would be. Well, then there was the, the notion that, well, that is our nature, but what is the impact of our nurture, i.e., what are the, what is the impact of what we're exposed to in terms of becoming the six foot seven, that's you, not me, for sure, uh, individual who does what you do each day. And so there was this sort of dichotomy between nature and nurture that existed for quite some time uh, until we finally recognized that nature and nurture exist in a beautiful dance whereby nurture, i.e. those uh, events to which we are exposed, those influences to which we are exposed, are influential uh, in terms of changing our gene expression. We call this epigenetics. And that said, we get back to the notion that our genome uh, was cultivated. Certain genes allowed, uh, certain genes would persevere because they were coding for good things. Certain genes would die out uh, or, or not be passed on because they didn't allow the individual who had that genetic difference uh, to survive and procreate. That's Mendelian genetics, or I would say uh, it's, uh, you know, that's how we understand genes to work. It's Darwinian, if you will. That said, um, what an understanding uh, that we have now that our lifestyle choices influence gene expression, and therefore uh, that is powerfully uh, you know, in, uh, giving us a, a huge degree of leverage over our genetic code in terms of making the right choices to uh, choose actual expression of our genes that can reduce inflammation, increase our antioxidant coverage, um, etc., allow increased detoxification, allow the production of higher levels of various good chemicals, uh, glutathione, for example. So this is very empowering, uh, but saddles with each and every one of us a high degree of responsibility 
in terms of making the right choices. A, understanding how our how we are uniquely uh, defined in terms of our genome, which gets back to understanding our genome. We'll maybe have a chance to talk about that. And then B, instituting those specific changes that cause gene expression towards the positive. That said, uh, we understand that perhaps 70% of uh, our genes that are involved in both health and determining our lifespan are actually to some degree under our control. Yowza, that's empowering, but again, comes with it a, a healthy dose of responsibility. So that frames this notion of then what is the what did the lifestyle look like of our ancestors uh, that brought us to the table today? And when we look at the ancestral diet, it was one that was primarily and importantly very high in fiber. And you thought it was going to say fat, and we'll get there in just a, mi- in a minute. But we understand that we ate what we could kill and what we could find on the ground that was already dead or that was plant-related, and that's what we ate for an awful long time. And that interfaced with our genome and allowed us to be who we are today. So, uh, you know, the, the paleo movement is one that embraces this idea that we're trying to reconnect with the genome of our ancestors by influencing the genome that we inherited by providing those extrinsic influences upon the genome to give us good health. So I I will digress from the fat question for just a moment because I want to just focus. Sure. uh, I did mention fiber because it's clear that our ancestors ate an awful lot of fiber, much, much more than we typically eat. Now, why is that important? It's because that fiber nurtured the gut bacteria, allowed the gut bacteria to make various metabolic products that are helpful for our bodies, various vitamins, various neurotransmitters, uh, reducing inflammation, healing the gut lining, etc. The other aspect of the uh, ancestral diet is one that had precious little simple carbohydrates. Dietary fiber is carbohydrate, so our carb content uh, was high, but this was a, a, the type of carbohydrate that was good for us, not the obvious pro- uh, processed uh, carbohydrate that is so pervasive in the human diet today, which works in multiple uh, ways to be detrimental, not just directly, as I mentioned, through this protein binding uh, of sugar, but also through the changes in the gut bacteria. That said, we ate meat and we ate things that we could kill or that were already dead that had fat in them and had good fat in them, not the type of fat that's found in in typical meat today. So we powered our bodies with fat, and there were times when we wouldn't power our bodies. Uh, The notion of three meals a day hadn't been invented yet, and there were times of feast and times of famine, famine quite literally, and we adapted to that. That was There was food, and then there wasn't food. And when we are restricted from calories, our bodies metabolize fat as a fuel source. It's a beautiful mechanism because fat is far more efficient in terms of storing calories than the storage form of sugar called glycogen and is a wonderful repository to allow us to basically persevere during times of caloric scarcity. And that is a mechanism that we can activate today because... Powering our bodies with fat and allowing fat to, we don't allow it, but what happens is it it undergoes a change in the liver called beta-oxidation, and ultimately we create these products that are called ketones. 
Uh, and one of the most important is called beta-hydroxybutyrate, mm-hmm. which technically is actually not a ketone. Who knew? But the fact is that when our bodies are calorically deprived uh, or we're on a diet that is providing much higher levels of fat and restricting carbohydrates and we are augmenting that diet even more beneficial with uh, things like MCT oil, which you gave me this morning because I didn't want to travel with it, uh, or coconut oil. We are enhancing the body's creation of these ketones. And let me focus specifically on this beta-hydroxybutyrate because it's a very intense and powerful fuel uh, that is extremely efficient, especially as it relates to the brain. So we all learn that, oh, you got to have glucose for your brain. Your brain needs sugar. I don't know who came up with that, but you know, to this day, when I offer up arguments about why we want to power the brain with fat, we always hear that as a response. You know, it's, it, when I post a blog about being on a ketogenic diet, etc., there's always somebody who says, "No, we all learned that the brain uh, needs sugar. Therefore, you should eat a Mars bar before the, your SATs, <laughs> and uh, you can take it to any level of absurdity." But that said, when we're on this ketogenic diet, low carbs, higher fat supplementing with coconut oil, MCT oil, etc., producing this beautiful uh, molecule called beta-hydroxybutyrate. That serves as a very powerful and efficient fuel source, creating a lot of these energy molecules, ATP, at the, at, with the creation of less free radicals in comparison to sugar. But beyond that, we are now understanding that this beta-hydroxybutyrate is far more important for us than simply serving as a fuel. We understand that beta-hydroxybutyrate is a signaling molecule and turns on the genetic apparatus to reduce inflammation, to uh, enhance the, the, the viability of our energy-producing components called mitochondria. It enhances the ability of our body to scavenge for damaged cells and damaged mitochondria and get rid of them. Um, so this beta-hydroxybutyrate is a powerful signaling molecule that changes our gene expression. So for these and other reasons, that's why a higher fat diet is really the right way to go. So some people will get, they'll get really excited and they'll say like, high fat, like I'm having like three sticks of butter and Yikes. they'll call it a day. And I think people tend to get carried away and they run with things. So when, it, when, is, when is it too much? And, and the oils are also a little debated. Some people say coconut oil, MCT, like, oh, I don't know. You know, maybe we're, we're torn on that now. It goes back and forth. I, I think that the science continues to evolve. And clearly our ancestors didn't have access to coconut oil or MCT oil. Right. So I think from that perspective, lower carbs, with the exception of uh, high carbohydrate, uh, part, part of your diet being made up of fiber, obviously getting rid of the refined carbohydrates, and good fats. And I would say that, um, for example, extra virgin olive oil is one of my sure. go-to. Uh, I wouldn't want to eat three sticks of butter a day. Uh, <laughs> but I will tell you that we talked about beta-hydroxybutyrate, butyrate. That's where it came, the name came from. Because in nature, butter is the highest source of butyrate. where the word comes from. Do you from. buy it? Was it the A1 and A2 casein? I think there's some... Uh, the there's Northern, some, well, Gundry will talk about that. The sure. Cows from, I think there's some uh, validity to the notion of that type of casein. So that's why we might want to opt for, if we're consuming dairy products, uh, goat's milk as opposed to cow's milk. Or as we do see now, there are products made from cow's milk that offer you know different ratios of A1 versus A2. But I think that you know, that's an issue with a specific protein called casein. Sure. And to summarize that is pe- people 
link casein to, to cancer and there's different types of the A1 versus A2, and it's the cows in, I want to say, southern France and Italy, which are the better cows. Those are the cows you want. True, uh, but they have those cows here in the States now as well. They, correct. But you have to look. It's like it, you got to look for these things. We have to look for the products. Right. So if we were to summarize, so Michael Pollan, one of my favorite lines, Michael Pollan, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. It, what would be your version of that to summarize? I, would, this was the, I totally agree with that. Okay. And, uh, Would you add a line about eat food not too much? Oh, Pro- for sure. Probably not so much gluten. <laughs> well, I'd say the bro- let's look at the broad strokes. Okay. And that would be, uh, I love what Michael Pollan has said, eat food uh, not too much and mostly plants. The reason I want to reiterate that is because having written Grain Brain, which did talk about eating meat, uh, you know, I have been accused of, you know, telling people that you need to be a Fred Flintstone and have this big... big chop on your on your car and i i would say uh in uh, that is actually in line uh with the china study oddly enough though i've been accused of being oppositional towards that uh that meat is in uh large part not a healthful food why do i say that and yet do i eat meat of course i do because the type of meat and that's very important that people are generally consuming is crap you know this factory farmed uh, meat that uh, comes from cattle that are being given glyphosate sprayed, genetically modified, derived uh, food sources, whether it's wheat or soy or corn, uh, and uh, these animals that have been treated with who knows what, including antibiotics, still happening, uh, I wouldn't go near that stuff. And the notion that studies that correlate meat consumption with increased risk for colon cancer and other issues um, get generalized to all meat, I think is unfortunate. Do I think there's validity in those studies? You bet I do, because I think they're derived from the fact that they look at people who ate meat or groups like Seventh-day Adventists who don't consume meat and look at the risk for various diseases. These are what we call correlative studies. Sure. And uh, I, I think that it's important to understand there's a strong difference between correlation and causation, that... A correlative study looks at a population that does this, that, and the other and finds out what their health is like and say, well, these things correlate, but doesn't mean that uh, it's causative. I mean, you know, we we know that wearing your seatbelt is correlated with lower risk for being severely injured in a car accident. But no one's ever proven that with a double-blind interventional trial where, you know, you take a group of people and over five years you say, don't wear your seatbelt. Obviously, no one's going to do such a study. So my point is to be derogatory towards these correlative studies. I think you know, we have to understand they're they're valuable. So how do you eat mostly vegetables and meat? Like what describe this how, morning? Yeah. I had a whole egg frittata with onions and mushrooms, smothered in extra virgin olive oil, and then it came with a very very large green salad for breakfast. Who knew? So uh, I'm traveling. Obviously, come up here to see you and. Uh, you know, you can't really take all the, the goodies that you, that you have in the pantry at home. But anyway, that's, that's what I had after my workout this morning. And, uh, that's probably what I'll have till this evening. So I'm, we haven't, I'm assuming you did not have this for breakfast, but one thing we did not talk about is alcohol. Good, bad, what's, what's okay, what's not okay? What's too it's, much? It's a great. It's a great question, and you know, over the years, I've been sort of not sort of. I mean, I have written support for one glass of red wine for women a day, up to two glasses of red wine for men. Again, the the uh, correlative studies would indicate that 
that level of alcohol consumption is correlated with lower risk for a variety of issues, including coronary artery disease, diabetes, and even uh, some forms of dementia. Uh, that said, you know, we look at the big picture. Alcohol in and of itself is a toxin, and this is specifically a toxin as it relates to brain cells. But it looks as if that downside may be offset by the upside of what is good with reference to the polyphenols and other components of red wine. I don't drink enough <laughs> by those standards. And uh, as I don't drink enough uh, in terms of the, following that recommendation, I think that my tolerance for alcohol in general has become less and less over the years. It's a moving, it's an evolving story. One uh, study recently came out that indicated any alcohol exposure is detrimental towards brain cells. And I fully transparently uh, blogged about that, saying that we need to keep our eye on the literature and to make these decisions. I'm going to use alcohol to bridge to the lifestyle piece of this. Oh, you're going to bust something out right now? <laughs> well, so I, I think we, we covered nutrition uh, thoroughly, but alcohol, I'm going to bridge the lifestyle and how that plays a role. And, you know, it's, it's my opinion. I am not a doctor. I'm not a researcher. That, that part of the appeal of alcohol is usually, for most people, you're having a drink, you're with friends, you're celebrating there's this connection. There are all these other lifestyle benefits of, of, you know, the spiritual idea of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, breaking bread. That's meaningful in terms of health. So what else in terms of lifestyle in your estimation is really critical to one's health and happiness and well-being? I would tell you that number one on the list after diet is exercise. Fundamental. I mean, uh, you know, there are many issues, but for me, involved in brain health, physical aerobic exercise is very, very important. And why do I say that? Because the correlative studies have demonstrated dramatically lower risk for Alzheimer's disease uh, in individuals who are involved more in exercise. And beyond that, uh, causative, uh, mo uh, the mechanisms may be related uh, to uh, the fact that when we exercise, getting back to our targeting gene expression, we are turning on the gene expression for something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, that enhances the growth of new brain cells and beyond that enhances what we call synaptogenesis or the ability of brain cells to connect to each other. And it's all, again, about reconnection. So that said, when we see that generally individuals who exercise more seem to have a lower risk for an untreatable condition, Alzheimer's, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. So what do you do? Do you run? Do you do high-intensity interval training? Do you do yoga? When do you do ultramarathons? Like, what's, like, the bare minimum? Do you walk? Uh, well... All the above? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, no, and yes. So uh, to answer those questions. Okay. But let me get back to... I'll get back to what I do personally uh, in just a moment. But I, I want to just uh, tell you that... While we've been talking about this for quite some time, I wrote about it in Grain Brain, which I, I want to tell your audience is going to be revised uh, coming out in December of 2018. Amazing, a refresh. Well, it's a five-year, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's a lot of new information that kind of validates what our original contentions were. That was a shameless pitch. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that said, uh, more and more literature is coming out indicating that the choice to exercise aerobically has a powerful effect upon the brain. Yeah, we know it's good for cardiovascular health. We know that it increases, uh, is associated with increased diversity of the gut organisms, as well as uh, the previous mechanism of turning on this brain growth hormone. But I want to tell you that I was uh, stunned in a very positive way by a study that was published 
two months ago in the journal uh, Neurology. And what this neurology is the go-to premier journal that neurologists read. And the study was uh, providing neurologists with practice guidelines. What should you as a neurologist do for patients who have what is called MCI. MCI stands for mild cognitive impairment, and MCI is the harbinger for trouble down the road, Alzheimer's disease. So if you're diagnosed with MCI, you're now on the continuum for getting Alzheimer's. And this is when we should intervene. If there were only a drug or only something that we could do that could help uh, retard the progression of this patient's brain, to Alzheimer's disease. They looked at 14 different drugs that are used uh, that doctors would write. And as they looked through these lists, they found that, in fact, the only drug that had any scientific underpinning being demonstrated to slow the progression of brain decline was a drug going by the name of exercise. (laughs) Think about that. They looked at all the mainstream drugs and said, guess what, doctors? These don't work. The only thing that has scientific validation that you could recommend to your patients is physical exercise. Now, I mean, this is a journal that over the years was really very centered on telling us what drug we should use for X, Y, and Z. This is a journal, like all typical medical journals, that is supported by the advertising for various products, many of them pharmaceutical. What a world for me uh, to to live in where our most well-respected journal is recommending a lifestyle change that you as a treating neurologist should be uh, divulging to your patient in terms of what he or she should now do to keep from progressing to Alzheimer's. Yowza, that is just, what a wonderful world. So we're seeing this, um, I think, a sea change that is consumer-driven, I believe, uh, that is away from this notion of looking for that magic pill. And again, to reiterate, there is no magic pill, despite the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars dedicated to trying to find that, you know, the the silver bullet uh, to treat uh, Alzheimer's. Now, to get back to what I do, again, I'm 63. I exercise every single day, even when I'm traveling, if I possibly can. And this morning, you and I have an early meeting here. Uh, But I, I enjoy the elliptical machine. And why is because it emulates running for me, uh, but there's much less impact involved. And by and large, these machines have arm use as well, so you're pushing with your arms. And uh, I find that uh, very comfortable, and most hotels have those machines now. I also run, and I don't run a lot, but I run three to four miles several times a week. I lift uh, weights. And I do yoga. I do uh, uh, about five minutes of yoga to stretch my back, et cetera, each day. So, so if, I, if I don't have time and I'm, I'm like, okay, I got 15 minutes and I, can, I, and I got 15 minutes every day, what should I do? 15 minutes to exercise? Yeah, period. Uh, I think it's really important to stretch, first of all. So I do a little yoga routine. I think I would uh, extend your back. I would flex your back. I would uh, rotate your hips to stretch out your piriformis muscle. I would stretch your neck. I think that's very important. While aerobics is really key, I think that if you don't stretch, you're at higher risk for injury, in which case you can't do any of your exercise. Uh, and then I think you've got to do whatever is available to you to get your heart rate up. Now, resistance exercise is important, but here we are limited to 15 minutes. Uh, you can do push-ups. You can do crunches right on the floor in your hotel room. Uh, I, that's what I do uh, in the gym, of course. Just what about taking the stairs? Take the stairs. Park your car further away if you drive to work. 
uh, or drive wherever it is that you're going. You know, people struggle to get that closest parking spot. It's like a goal that you won the parking uh, lottery. Park far away, and then you won't get door dinks, <laughs> and uh, it's good for you. So where do you think the wellness conversation is going? What, what, what has you excited? What do you think we're going to be talking about a, a year from now? Or In a, a word, from now? Uh, uh, where we are is, we've, is empowerment, and it's empowerment through knowledge. And that said, that's what Mind Body Green is all about, and, it's, and I commend you for that. I mean, you know, the, the amount of information that you're providing to people to make these choices is so robust and well-vetted. And so, again, I commend you for that. This Thank is, you very much. You know, you're touching a lot of people. And I think it is, we've reached a place where people are understanding that what marketing may have told them they should be doing may not be in their self-interest, in their best interest. Uh, that we have to take steps back and understand that it isn't necessarily what we buy, it's more what we do. Uh, as we've talked about, the food choices we make, the amount of exercise we get, the meditation that we engage in, uh, the ability of us to get restorative sleep. These are choices that we make based upon uh, simple, uh, non-commodity-related um, choices. So my last question, if you could go back in time and give 20-something Dr. David Perlmutter advice, what advice would that be? Oh, to me? Oh, when yeah. I'm 20 or something? Go back in time, go back in the time machine and <laughs> give yourself advice. No particular order, <laughs> right? <laughs> Number one, I should have, you're going to love this one. I should have flossed my teeth more. Uh, uh, but I, if I could have gone back, I would have done that. I would have been much more careful in the sun. I grew up in Florida and um, I wish I would have known. We didn't have sunscreen in those days. It was just starting to, to become a thing. Uh, I would have certainly not bought into the notion of uh, low-fat this and low-fat that. I would have been much more careful, uh, much more uh, tuned in to the importance of exercise and sleep. I would have uh, been more engaging with people around me. I would have spent more time with uh, my family. I, I probably might have considered pursuing my uh, first love, which was, oddly enough, meteorology, because I'm still interested in that. Uh, made more of an effort to connect to other people back then, though I'm doing it now. I think uh, I would have started meditating at an earlier age um, and just understanding that those choices I made early in life are manifesting now. Uh, but beyond that, I, I would say that uh, it's really important uh, to recognize that it's never too late. Uh, that, for example, er exercise can be something that we begin at age 80 that can have a, f a very important effect upon the brain, uh, for example. So I think you know a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about are changes. Uh, to get back to your question about how much gluten is too much gluten or is a little bit, uh, I, I think that we have to live in a world where we're, we're not orthorexic, that uh, we are freaked out about every choice that we make. Uh, but having said that, we know, I think, pretty much the broad stroke recommendations that seem to be appropriate. Uh, but understanding that those recommendations may likely change with time, and we have to be open to that, that as we continue to understand uh, the developments in our understanding about what makes for a healthy lifestyle, uh, that we have to be open to the notion of change. I love that. Dr. David Perlmutter, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening.